Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 84. Today's guest is Wendy Vidalock, one of my favorite poets. She's here on the line right now. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been publishing since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. And one of these days, I'm going to say the word unaffiliated right without tripping over it. We just do this, though, because we love poetry. And if you love poetry as much as we do, and I know you do, please do click the like button. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you share this with all your friends and family. You know, poetry doesn't really spread around the Internet like we'd like it to because the Internet is sort of based on outrage and um and sort of things that people are upset about and strife and things, because that's what draw you back into um, social media threads and stuff like that. And poetry makes you reflect and contemplate, and that just doesn't really work well for the uh, algorithms that we have. So if you would, please click the like button and uh, make sure you're shared and subscribed and all that stuff, because that's the only way it gets out outside of this audience. And uh, it's a great audience we have, and I appreciate it every uh, week that we have with you here. Now, as I mentioned, Wendy Vidalock is one of my favorite poets. We've been publishing her um, for, for dozens of years. Not dozens, one dozen years, I guess. Um, Wendy Vidalock is the author of the full-length poetry collection Slingshots and Love Plums, which is her most recent, then The Dark New and other poems, and Nevertheless, as well as the chapbook uh, What's That Supposed to Mean? Uh, she lives with her husband and children in Palisade, Colorado, and you can find more of her at Wendy Vidalock. That's Wendy, V-I-D-E-L-O-C-K dot com. And uh, here she is with a special appearance from her cat, Wendy Vidalock. Oh, the cat just jumped right when I said that. So it looks like I was inventing the cat, but the cat was really there. <laughs> well, I was wondering what kind of view you were going to get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did have the backside of the cat for a little bit, but... Um, she knew when to jump. <laughs> What's your cat's name, by the way? Every poets usually have good oh, names. Oh my goodness. Her name is Asha Slinka Sosostra Sofia Maria Gatita Bonita Mia. Oh my gosh. Does she reply to all of those? She does. <laughs> oh wow. That is that is amazing. Well you I, ask. <laughs> Yeah. Well, like I said, poets have great names for cats. So um that's a lot of fun to hear. Um so do you want to start us out with a poem, Wendy? Um I'm gonna start with a little Yates. Uh-huh. Um, probably one of the earliest poems I remember hearing and being completely sort of hooked. Where dips the rocky highland of sleuth wood in the lake, there lies a leafy island where flapping herons wake the drowsy water rats. There we've hid our fairy vats full of berries and of reddest stolen cherries. Come away, O human child, to the waters and the wild, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. Uh, beautiful recitation of that, uh, Wendy. So uh, that, that sort of brings up the question of, um, um, of how you got into poetry, which I've always wondered about. Like, I've, I've been a fan of her for so long. It's so distinctive. Um, I, you know, I would say um, you're, you're the most unique poet um, publishing today really but then alan always gets upset when i say the word most unique because it's either <laughs> unique or it's not but uh but i think there are degrees of infinity and there are degrees of unique and you are one of the most unique um you know and i've always wondered like where you got that sort of your own style and voice which is so different than most of what people are publishing today um well first of all thank you for those nice words um, it's kind of both a curse and a blessing to have a kind of a, you know, that 
that because it's hard to kind of break out of it. And if you do, then people kind of, you know, have a little bit of a bad reaction. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> like, so, ba- like a Bob Dylan going electric or something. Right? Yeah, exactly. yeah. But, but where, did the, where did it come from? Like, when did you start writing poetry? Uh, well, you know, I mean, I think coming out as a poet has been a very gradual process for me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I think I was always writing um, and sort of, you know, really paying attention to language. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't until, well, it's sort of interesting because um, you sort of, one of the things that we always struggle with as poets is, you know, what good is it what we're doing? We can't change the world or not really. Didn't, and, um, and I sort of started to realize maybe in my forties that one of my roles as a poet was to deliver elegies and memorials because the older you get, the more, <laughs> the more people die. <laughs> um, and that, you know, we really, this is, you know, to be able to do that has felt like that's a meaningful sort of role that the poet plays in society. Um, So it's kind of sort of been hard to sort of reconcile um, the sort of quiet sort of poet and the sort of self that is all these other things. And it seems limiting, you know, so I was kind of not comfortable coming out as a poet. Hmm. Then I moved to Colorado about 25 years ago and the community of poets here is so, you know, vibrant, you know, sort of dragged me into, you know, a sort of much more um, sort of open, you know, being on stage, doing, you know, events, attending, you know, festivals, conferences. And and I think it it really was fabulous because um, it was sort of like, this quiet thing I was doing really just needed to be integrated. You know what I mean? It was sort of like, you don't keep a separate, you know? So it it was sort of like coming out. (laughs) And I still do. Like I still sort of have a little bit of a reluctance to talk too much about the poems. I try not to get too attached to them. You know, the poems that I'm most attached to are the ones I'm writing in the moment. And then I kind of have to like let them go. Mm -hmm. Um, let them kind of, you know, so I don't necessarily feel always a need to accompany them, but I love being with poets and talking with poets. So it's drawn me out much more. When, when you say coming out as a poet, do you mean, yeah. um, were you publishing or, or were you just sort of I, doing it for I yourself? Might have, I yeah. might have published a couple of things under a pseudonym uh-huh. <laughs> early on, <laughs> which I'm glad in hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and you seem, uh, I always wondered, how did you, you broke kind of into Poetry Magazine, and you've had a lot of poems in poetry, which everybody, probably watching, almost everybody watching is envious of. Um, oh. when, when did that happen? And, and how, do you, did you just, it was just open submissions, and you just submitted, and, and all yeah. of a sudden they started publishing yeah. things? Or I think, I think again, another community, um, this sort of formalish sort of community, mm-hmm. watching Alicia Stallings, you know, sort of break those barriers, you know, that for so many years, those who sort of rhymed and used meter were saying, oh, nobody will publish us. It's like, but if you're like uh, that good, they can't ignore you. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like, well, I'll just start sending stuff out. And uh, yeah, that happened. It actually happened under Joe Parisi, who had written me a note on a poem I would only send one poem at a time. I think that might have caught their attention in the big slush 
but he said, you know, send again. And then he, he, he changed, you know, suddenly it was Wyman. And I thought, well, there goes that. But then Wyman, uh, under Wyman, he was doing everything from free verse to like rattle. You know, it was mm-hmm. this really nice conglomerate of different genres of poetry, all kinds of different sensibilities, you know. And so it was kind of like an open door that I feel that Alicia opened for a lot of us. Hmm. That's interesting. I never heard that that story before. It's good to hear. Um, do you want to read a poem just so people can can see your style uh, that we're talking about? Uh, what do you want to read? to start with uh, you know I think I'll read a love poem okay by the way my bio that is with you guys is old but the kids have gone they're long gone <laughs> well I just got it from your website so update your website right I know I, I'm so bad I'm so <laughs> it's bad. okay I, I'm the same way too I think my my website is like from 2010 like I haven't changed anything since then so, right <laughs> yeah and I and and so this is a little bit of a um, after you know sort of waking up in an empty nest kind of feeling, which will which will come your way, my friend. <laughs> and no matter how much you think you're prepared for it, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, mine are mine are uh, ten and six, and so uh, we have some time, but it goes by so fast. It goes so fast. Yeah. Uh, what poem are you going to read? Because I have the poems uh, here. With the nature of this. Okay, let me find it so I can show it for everybody. Oops, the nature of it all, not the nature of it all. Do I have that one here? I'm always revising. I <laughs> <laughs> okay. probably is the nature of it all. Okay, well, I'll put that up right now. Okay, here you go. Go ahead whenever you're ready then. Thanks, Tim. This summer is coming to a close. The river where we panned for gold will soon be strewn with fallen leaves. The sago lily and the rose have quieted. Today it seems that all the world is gentling. We have let go of clutching things. From here we watch the seasons come and go with a surprising ease. It isn't that we've bested fear or that we never wake and know in spite of love, we die alone. It is enough to fall in love, to fall in love and watch the world unfold. Yeah, beautiful sonnet, The Nature of It All by Wendy Vidalock. Thanks for sharing that, Wendy. So um, how do you encounter, like, how do you how do you write your poems? Um, being that, um, you know, I've been trying to write for our um, open mic later, which everybody, if, if you're new, there's an open mic afterward. I've been trying to write in your styles because they're shorter usually. <laughs> Um, for the whole year, because I don't take up much time, and I and I love what you do, and I thought maybe like after a year I would be able to do it, and I still can't. I don't know how you do. I was trying to think of it today, like what the problem is, and the problem in my head is I sort of get like stuck in the rut of a rhythm if I'm doing a short rhythmic poem like that, and mm-hmm. you have a way of like breaking out and making it feel not as regular, um, and I just I just was thinking about this today, but how do you go about writing the poems that you do? where um, they're so concise. Like, like, do they start big and then you narrow them down into the, how concise they are? Or do they come out like a whole? How do, they, how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's like chiseling. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other times, I think, that, I think that there's a sensibility, you know, that I share with like an Emily Dickinson or a Kay Ryan where there's something about concision 
that kind of allows us to cut through all the other stuff that's going on inside. You know mm -hmm. what I'm saying? So it's, it feels like um, to try to condense all of that um, and sort of marry it to the outside world so that it's not just an inner sort of thing. It's like this interaction that happens. And sometimes I think that, you know, by playing with the meters, like if we, people think that the meter means you set a pattern and you keep it, but the whole idea is to break it because once you've got an expectation, then you've got all this sort of fertile soil from which to shift the emotion and the register and all of that. So really meter is meant to be broken. We call those substitutions, you know, but, but when you play with it like that, once the ear has decided it might go one way and you sort of interrupt it, the most famous modern example of this is Adele, hmm. you know, that song, um, someone like you or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. the one that SNL did a thing where everybody just weeps when they hear this song. And, you know, scientists are, had been studying that. Like, why is it that this particular moment in this song has this powerful effect? It's because she does this thing. There's a musical word for it where she just, you know, shifts that register right at the right, you know, time. And it bypasses the intellect so that you're not really, you're sort receiving it emotionally like music and poets do can do this too you know so to know that breaking like to set a pattern is to break a pattern so that you can have something actually happen in the poem like some kind of tension some kind of jolt you know that just makes that sort of energy you know mm -hmm. go go have and Kay ryan is the maestra do you know her work, Tim? Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. Oh my goodness, yeah, yeah. Um, do you want to do you want to read another another poem? Um, sure. Let's do uh, some short ones since you mentioned short ones. Yeah. Um, so there's a few of them that I had put together in the starts with in a pale August glow. Yeah. Let me just get to that. Probably should. Oh, here we go. Okay, I have these ready. I love this first one. This is just a three, you know, a title in two lines, um, but amazing. That's another really fun thing with short poems is to really make the title do something, mm -hmm. you know, to play with them. So what I what I try to do is I I write haiku in the fall. I don't know why. It sometimes just don't know why these things sort of tend to you look back and you go why am i always writing sort of haiku in the fall but you know you start to play with that first line as a title so that you can you don't have to worry about the syllables you really the haiku is more about the term like a sonnet it's like not about the rhyme it's got all that yeah but it's more about that juxtaposition so and also, I want to say thank you to Rattle for not being afraid to publish funny poems, which a lot of <laughs> that's really frowned upon, you know. Well, yeah, I want to talk. Well, talk let's talk about that later because I did want to talk about that a lot. Okay. Um, but but let's talk about that after we read a couple of poems. All right. Okay. In a pale August glow, a neighbor in his garden weeding for Godot. Yeah. Minor adjustment. 
There aren't any Freudian slips, but moving seas and ghost ships, perhaps designed to nick or realign the rudders of the honest mind. Nest of books and succulents and strands of silhouette, they've built another nest. Their children came, their children went. A heron flies over and she swears there is everywhere and anywhere. And then there's the sticks in the wild, quiet West. Yeah, let, let's stop there and, and um, talk about, um, uh, let's just talk about that, that sense of humor, really. Uh, the, um, the poem that I posted for today is today's poem to sort of preview the show. Your note was, I think I'm a devotee of poetry in large part because it refuses to paraphrase, has a little interest in good manners and doesn't have a dress code. And I just love <laughs> that idea of like, um, of doesn't, isn't interested in good manners. And, uh, and just the playfulness that you write with, which is what stands out so much. Like it, I was trying to think of, I was reading the books of yours that I have. I don't have the newest one, but uh, I have the two older ones. And I was trying to think of like what I love so much about it. And what it really is, is it's the playfulness that you're just like, it feels like you're having so much fun. And then I have so much fun reading. And it takes me back to that original place where like you fall in love with poetry, you know, where you're playing with words and just sort of like for the kicks for yourself, you know, and it doesn't become a, it's not like a serious business. It's just fun. Um, right. Do you, do you, um, like, why do you focus on that? Or, or and, and do you have trouble, like, keeping it up once you have books, too? You know, that's something that I always find that once you start publishing, it becomes sort of more serious. It's hard to keep up the fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So after my, my last book, I told myself I'd go 10 years without the next book because it it's like that's how long it takes to sort of figure out what I, you know, what's worth it. Because mm-hmm. I don't like to put out things that I don't think are sort of inviting, like what, you know, I really, I'm really sort of struck by that and suffer from that. (laughs) But, um, but I, I think that it comes from knowing that the books that I read, you know, because I, we, we all tend to take ourselves very seriously. So I appreciate writers who have that kind of twinkle in their eye, you know, where they're sort of like, they've got this sort of, you know, this little, this little wink, you know, that just makes it all, puts it all in a kind of perspective. So I guess it's just kind of, I also think I've been very influenced by Bob Dylan, Hmm. you know, where it's sort of like just play is just by playing with words, you can suddenly hit on something that will, you know, take you in a whole nother direction. And that surprise, you know, like, Robert Frost said, no surprise for the writer, no surprise for the reader. Like, I want to play until I get, like, surprise myself, mm-hmm. you know, because otherwise I'm just digging through all the other sort of psychobabble and monkey mindy stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, do, do you, uh, like, how I imagine it is that you sort of play with poems every day and sort of, and just are amusing yourself and then you're sharing the stuff that's most amusing for us. Do you, uh, do you write regularly or no? Not at all. Yeah. It was Oscar Wilde who said, you know, a poet can write one line in a day and it's a good day. It's a good day. And I mean, that's kind of how, how we are. So no, I'm, I go along with the whole Keats thing that, you know, at least for myself, the poet is the least poetical creature on earth. You know, that you just sort of, I'm just 
always paying attention to language. And so that can be tedious to others. (laughs) 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 But I find human speech just absolutely fascinating and the power of language. And it's sort of like my language, it's like my language is language. Like that is my medium. I just love listening to it. And I love eavesdropping. I love conversation. I love books. I love podcasts. I, I think that it's so powerful. And so many of us sort of don't know how to use our voices. It's difficult, you know, sort of you know, riding that line of, you know, sort of being yourself or, you know, what, what is yourself when you contain all of this? You know, so as Keats said, you know, the poet is usually just sort of like there <laughs> on the daily, just sort of there paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um, well, if anybody has any uh, questions for, for Wendy, please do share them in the uh, chat window just to remind everybody that I will pass them along. So I'm, I'm watching Facebook and YouTube nowhere else. Um, and Carlton Johnson has a question here I see already. So we'll, we'll, we'll ha- uh, take questions later, but just leave your questions now and I will... Uh, pass them along. Do you want to read a couple more poems, Wendy? All right. This one appeared in Rattle some years ago. It's called, I have been counting my regrets. Bacon, Facebook, cigarettes, anger, bluster, laziness, fearfulness, indifference, lousy lovers, stupid bets, things that should not be confessed, I'm still not dead. It should be said, I haven't finished counting yet. (laughs) Just sort of Dorothy (laughs) Parker-ish. So the old wrangler. There's coffee in the lodge, a snake in the pit, some dogs on the loose, and a leak in the roof where something akin to sympathy seeps in. Yeah, that was said the old wrangler. And I have been counting my regrets. And like haiku, I always I'm tempted to ask you to uh, read your poems twice because they so they they turn and surprise in a way that um you know lends itself to that. Um, the, Vicky Miko asked something that I was going to ask about too because you do. I'll show the the dark new here um, on screen for everybody. Um, this is your cover art, and the whole book is full of your art, which are, I think ink. Um, sort of I, don't, I I I'm not sure how these or created it feels like it's sort of that spontaneous ink style that then you add things to um but but there's so much art in these books and just beautiful stuff like this is um and then and then little um pull phrases like wherever you go there is a moon and then we have this this beautiful ink drawing um and so vicky miko asks or she says i love your art wendy um uh, thank you uh, how much do you paint, and and do you match art to your poems, or vice versa? Um, so, uh, on Netflix recently, there was this Fran Lebowitz special, mm-hmm. and she's uh, she's talking about how she chose between write, being a writer and being an artist, and she said, "I enjoyed making art too much. I couldn't be an artist." <laughs> And I really, that really resonated with me. I would rather be painting than writing, Hmm. but something draws me to write. Painting is like crop rotation. Hmm. You know, it's um, wordless. You know, it's got a whole nother set of tools. Um, And then, and then I find that they inform each other and sort of play with each other. And 
Thank you for that compliment too. Uh, what I want to ask is, is like where where the uh, the art comes from. Like, do you think like you mentioned earlier the way changing register in a poem can like move past your your uh, your consciousness, you know, and then and then sort of lock you in a new level, and and art that's what art does too. Um, is there a way, like, like, what do you think, where do you think the art comes from? And like, how do you get to the space where you can be a conduit for the art to come out? Like, well, I think that's a great question because, um, I always, I have a, I mean, I could preach about this. Every single poet in the world should have a journal with them all the time because, um, doodling is just like writing and it leads to writing. So really, I'm a doodler, and I just, you know, started adding, you know, more embellishment, you know, as I went and sort of doing different things. But really, having that journal, because for years, I used to sort of write I, or sort of speak ideas into my phone, because the, my phone was now the thing I carried around instead of my journal. And I've gone back to my journal, because I put them on my phone and not sort of harvest them. They just would get lost in all the other stuff that was on there. But the journal is this physical thing that you can really doodle in. And, you know, there's a, I mean, most poets have so many other sort of creative things that they do and they don't think they can draw, but everybody doodles. And it really does have a connection to the alphabet and, and words, things come of it, you know? Yeah. Well, Vicky Miko always, um, or very often anyway, submits um, Haiga and, and combines haiku and poetry. And, and so he showed those on the open mic later. Um yeah, do you want to read a couple more poems? Okay, what should we do? What should we do? What do we have? I don't know. We have a bunch, and we have um, you know that that long one, and there's disarmed, and oh yeah, let's do disarmed. Okay. Little sonnet. I should be diligent and firm. I know I should, and frowning too. Again, you failed to clean your room. Not only that, the evidence of midnight theft is in your bed. Cracked peanut shells and M&Ms are crumbled where you rest your head. And just above, the windowsill is crowded with a green giraffe who's peering through a telescope, some dominoes, and half a glass of orange juice. You thirsty child, how could I be uncharmed by this? Your secret world, your happy mess. Oh, another wonderful one. That's another haiku disarmed by Wendy Vidalock. Um, and, and notice the little shifts. I always love it uh, when, you know, poets read slightly edited versions um, and you can <laughs> see what has changed. So um, so hungry becomes thirsty. And um, and, and what, what was that? Do you know why that change? Like, like why did you make that little change? I mean, I'm sure there's a reason there. Hungry is in there, but with orange juice, I don't know why it wouldn't be thirsty. <laughs> I also might have been thirsty at the moment that I was reading it because I noticed I took a drink right afterwards. But I have to say this great, great expression, happy mess. I heard that from my sister and I just sort of made a mental note. You know, she was always kind of sloppy and she called it her happy mess. And I remember having that moment where, you know, I, I really wanted to scold him and just being in such awe of his whole inner life, you know, and what was going on in, inside of his world, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that happy mess. Um, um, I wanted to ask, 
um, who who your your influences are, who your who your favorite poets are. Do you remember? Um, you mentioned Yeats before, but do you remember the f- yeah. like when? Do you remember falling in love with poetry and what what happened there? And do you remember the first poem that you wrote that you were proud of? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I well, I might have been proud of proud of it at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the kind of, there's this thing though where we're like. We have that in my experience, and a lot of people I've talked to have this moment where the poetry that they wrote themselves is a surprise to them, and it's like, right. oh my god, I knew something that yeah, I didn't yeah. know I knew. That is so right. awesome, and that's what like yeah. propels you. Well, Was there a moment like the that? Because they feel like we didn't really write them, mm-hmm. <laughs> so we kind of don't take credit for them because we weren't, you know, pouring sweat into it. Um, but a lot of times, like. I mean, I think I was very influenced by, you know, nursery rhyme um, and um, dream time. And um, that I think that what happens is we have this moment with poetry where we spend the rest of our lives sort of trying to reproduce it, sort of trying to revisit that magic. And when it happens, we're more and more invigorated to do it more. That's the great joy of it, reading it and writing it, is that you just get to be surprised and in awe and in wonder of something that you, you kind of feel like you, you could take credit for, but, you know, just kind of came. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then, like I say, then I kind of feel that you, now I need to let it go. <laughs> because I don't want to get too attached to it because I always want to sort of do something, you know, surprise myself, you know, go on to, you know, something else. But I was influenced for sure by um, early Yates. I didn't know anything about later Yates until I became a later person, (laughs) you know, so I sort of like grew with him that I would, you know, because he wrote so he was old kept writing his best stuff, you know, they say, but I love the early stuff, which really tapped into something, you know, in my childhood, which was like a fairy tale where you're always on edge. You don't really know what's happening. That the poem I read earlier is about death. <laughs> you know, so are most fairy tales, you know, there's always on that edge of, you know, poetry and is always aware of death. So poets are death obsessed. And, and so we, we get, consolation and also an exhilaration having this kind of relationship you know some people call it duende whatever it is it's that thing that kind of keeps everything in balance mm-hmm. um, I remember being really moved by Jared Manley Hopkins um, and what he did with you know like um, spring and fall to a young child uh, Margaret are you weaving are you weeping over Golden Grove on leaving I mean come on <laughs> that kind of stuff I didn't know what was going on there but I knew I was hooked mm-hmm. um, modern so sort of living um, favorites would be Alicia obviously Arena Espyat who you've also had on Rattlecast um, they really know how to work with silence and sound they know how to sort of you know create all kinds of different atmospheric things that are so quiet and underneath, you know, that you don't know that it's having that effect on you, but it's Mm -hmm. having that effect. And, you know, they just, they just are so good with sound and silence. Yeah. There's so much like technical about, about poets like that, 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 and it's like watching a concert violinist or something play, you know, mm. there's a difference. And do yeah. you feel, do you, are you able to enjoy free verse or, or just free, 
free form poetry too. Oh, for sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, um, see, one of my favorite poems is Gary Snyder's The Great Mother. Do you know it? Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's a small, a very small one. You know, not all those who pass before the great mother's chair get by with only a stare. Some, she looks at their hands to see what kinds of savages they were. I mean, you know, that has a great development. It's just such a, so, so earthy and big at the same time. And um, yeah, I like, I like, I like short poems. I have a short attention span. I tend to read poetry books, not from front to finish, but you know, as I'm feeling the book, um, and then if something really gets me, then I'll go from start to finish. But you know, I think that I think that I'm a little bit, you know, I've got a little OCD going on. So the short is kind of really a kind of consolation. But I admire the lo- the longer epic stuff too. Yeah. Well, we have one uh, long poem to read, maybe in a little bit. Uh, so I'm interested in seeing how because I am used to you being a, a short poet. Um, so having this longer. Um, poem is really interesting but before we do that let's uh josh williams asks about this um about form and and he says um as as for formal poetry what metrics do you find the best for humor iambic tetrameter uh, what are your go-to meters for what emotion do you think of it like that or is it more sort of organic do you, well, do you... i mean if you look at like, the, the rhythm of a limerick you can't really be serious with that rhythm <laughs> yeah. i mean i guess it can be um, and I don't even know the name of that. Um, but yes, some of them are inherently funny, but I, I mean, I don't know. I don't write enough sort of light verse to really kind of observed what happens. I know that, that with, um, that with funny poems, if they, if they sound like it's a cliche, just like with a joke, you kind of know it right away. So I try not to be funny in the beginning. <laughs> and that, you know what I mean? Because uh, it's sort of like, it's, a, it's sort of like the opposite of tell a joke at your speech, it'll lighten the room, everybody will <laughs> like you right away. It's sort of the opposite with, you know, poetry, you want to, it must be a serious point here. And then you kind of let, let them, let their guard down a little bit. So that they're now not sure whether they're entering humorous. You know, Wendy Cope is really good at that English, um, uh, poet who I mean she's known as a light verse um, poet but much of it is is like invective uh, you know satirical it can be sharp it can be very poignant you know light verse is a big tent it's got mm-hmm. a bad reputation yeah it, it definitely does and there there aren't that many um, places that publish light verse uh, there's there's light um, is it like quarterly? They still call it that. I think it changed to. Um, so I think now it's just called light quarterly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth, and she, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah, and yes. then there's light, uh, lighten up online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, every once in a while, there's J.K. X.J.K. Kennedy. Yeah, mm-hmm. seems to have a lot of. Um, he seems to have a lot of readership and he's a light, you know, I mean, he does a lot of things, but he's primarily known as a light verse poet. Mm-hmm. But as far as journals, I don't, there aren't that many. Yeah. How do you reconcile that? It's such a strange thing to me. And it kind of always is that like that meter and rhyme are what regular people like. 
And, and having humor and poetry that doesn't take itself seriously is what regular people like. And yet we published all this really heavy stuff about like philosophy and death and rape and all sorts of terrible things that happen. Um, and, and yet like you're trying, you're publishing like light verse in serious magazines. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like how do you, how do you reconcile that? Like what, um, I mean, like why, why are we so serious as poets? I, I think I've brought this up before, but but I really don't, you know, I beg for, for more humor. And, yeah. it's, and humor's hard to do on the page, first of all. Maybe we, maybe we should talk about that. Like, humor is so easy. There's nowhere, I think, that's easier than at a poetry reading where you're, uh-huh. like, standing up and everybody's a little uncomfortable and, right. like, they don't know what to expect. And then you say something funny and they're like, oh, I'm actually engaged. Ha <laughs> ha. And then the whole room. Everybody loves it. Exactly. But then on the page, you're just sitting there in your room and you're like, this poet thinks she's funny. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, I don't know. Like, how do you uh, how do you pull off humor? Like, how, does it, how do you get it to work on the page? Hmm. Well... Um, so I think it was Mark Twain who said humor is serious business. Mm. Um, I think that, you know, um, an old friend of mine used to say, um, the best advice you can give to any poet is that your reader has a thousand other things to do. And so with light verse, as soon as we enter it, if we think we know where it's going, it might disinterest us. Kind of like a bad sitcom. There's a difference between like a good comic and a bad one. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. So you know, if you're go- if I'm going to send something out, I kind of want to feel like it's funny, but not that it starts off funny and stays funny throughout. I don't want to maintain humor the whole way. I want it to have like different you know shifts so that an editor might find something of value in it. You know, when I do, like, like when I'm writing it, I'm thinking, this is hilarious. But when I, it's sort of like, this is something Kay Ryan said, is that when you write, you're, you're whatever. But when you're publishing, then you're playing a different game. It has nothing to do with the writing, right? So, so it's like the way that she described it was sort of like, you, know, you just want to place your poems out there. It's like, you know, you just place them out there and then you can, where, wherever it is you like to read, put, put them out there and let them, you know, do what they do. And with humor, I always feel a little bit like my trickster is coming in because I try to get it in places where, where you normally wouldn't expect it. Mm-hmm. And so I want to surprise an editor and a reader and myself. It's sort of like that whole element of surprise. It's like, you know, we can watch anything on Netflix now. None of us are going to watch something we don't really like. It's the same thing with a poem. Like we want to have layers, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I, I always, I just, I think about that. You know, we did a humor issue and it was so hard to fill. <laughs> it was like issue 33. I don't remember if you were in it or not, but it was just so um, like, it was, and it was the strange thing too, is like poems that were submitted for the open section, just like regular, a lot of times were more funny than the poems that were submitted as humor. <laughs> it was a very strange issue to do. Um, but but why do you think, I mean, I guess my theory for why poetry is so serious, I feel like poetry is a, um, a kind of tool for understanding. And a lot of time, and what we most want to understand are problems. So it kind of ends up being this like problem solving tool. And so you're sort of driven toward problems instead of driven toward things that aren't problems. And humor doesn't really, isn't really a problem <laughs> in, in most cases, yeah. you know? 
Yeah. Um, but but it, I don't know. Does that that make sense to you, or, or why do you think that poetry is so serious? We don't have a lot of, um, we don't have a lot of sort of you know representation. It's sort of like England had so many sort of satire-driven you know literature that they developed a taste for it, whereas the American sensibility was you know Walt Whitman. You know, Robert Frost. I mean, they could be funny, but they weren't funny poets. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> but Robert Frost definitely had a sense of humor. Um, I mean, it's sort of like there, but it wasn't that it isn't the thing that people he's beloved for. So, you know, we don't really have a kind of a, a history with what to do with humorous verse. Um, and so, the, I mean, I think, too. I think it was Dave Mason who early on uh, after I moved to Colorado said, you know, poetry is fundamentally fun. And somehow that was like major for me Mm. that it was like, Oh, here I'm trying to be this serious poet, even though my poems aren't so serious, they still are funny, but they have, you know, so I was like, where do I belong in this? And it was just like, Oh, that just felt, Oh, it's okay to just be, you know, funny when you, when it's funny. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) Yeah. You know, everything is fun. It's like they say, you know, sex is funny. If you're not smiling or laughing, you know, there's something inherently funny about sex, just like chickens. There's just some things that are just inherently funny. So you should be able to laugh, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that that sort of aspect with the American thing may not jive as well. It's sort of yeah. we have a sensibility of, you know, that doesn't take it in in, a, in the same way. It does in our pop culture, but not necessarily in our in our literary story. Hmm. I could be wrong about this. I could be completely. No, I think that I never really thought of it that way, but that does make a lot of sense because so much of what we're doing is, is repeating or trying to recreate what's modeled for us, you know? So, you know, we all want to be the well-known poet, like someone who we, we admire and they're (laughs) writing all this stuff that, that works a certain way. And, and, you know, it's hard to branch out away from that, I guess. Yeah. Um, do you want to, let's do some more poems before we uh, run out of time. Um, do you want to do the long one or something different? Um, when you say the long one, do you I'm talking about the tongue. Oh, (laughs) um, we could do that. I mean, I, this is, this more like, uh, how about if we just do a couple pages of that? Yeah, sure. That'd be good. Going through the whole thing. Yeah, I don't know how long it would take to do the whole thing because a lot of lines are short too, and it's double spaced. It was hard to okay. judge, but yeah, whatever you want. But so this is um, this is really branching out for me. The tongue, it isn't. So this is like a mix of uh, verse and prose, and I don't know. It's a it's a genre bending thing that I've been sort of playing with, and my upcoming book is going to be a series of these kinds of things where sort of ideas about poetry, about the creative life, and then, and then verse, like a highbun, or prosimetrum in the English tradition. The tongue. It isn't easy to tell a story when one hasn't got a tongue. I didn't know this when I was young. The tongue and all its implications, taste, thirst, voice, nurture, nature, the sensual language, and the search for the mother tongue has been my lifelong passion, and I suppose my area of study, though I didn't know that either when I was young. The first language I can remember acquiring was the language of silence. In silence, the realms of dream and imagination are nourished, but so too is the realm of fear 
and the strange weight of isolation. Dear world, is there such a thing as passive verb? The first word or separating heart from wild signed a very small child. When feeling around for one's own tongue or taste or thirst, one becomes acutely aware of the power of words, but also of their more subtle capacities, ambiguity, consolation, complexity, mystery. Sometimes language seems to be another kind of Milky Way, a swirling dance in which we are all engulfed, where time is strange and myths are made and some words shine and some rhyme and some seem to bloom and die right before our eyes. The word I wish to understand is opaque. The buried or unexamined is not the same as the clean slate. An opal is sometimes real, sometimes fake. One vaguely knows a thing has changed its shape. It's an accumulation that makes an ache. Sometimes all a word can do is break and wait for something to illuminate. Yeah, let's talk about, I'm, I wanna hear more about this uh, idea here. Sometimes language seems to me another kind of Milky Way. Um, can you just, what do you mean by that? Do you, do, you, do you know what you mean by that? Do you have any idea of what you mean by that? It makes so much sense to me. <laughs> it's you know, sort of thrown in at the last minute right before I sent this to you, but um, it really is, I mean, when you, from where we live on the western slope of Colorado, we can see the Milky Way, and yet we are engulfed in it. And this is like one of the great things about perception is that we are engulfed in that which we can't really, we're sort of in the belly of the beast. So we, perception is always sort of being sort of, you know, readjusted. And, and, and there's something about that Milky Way that kind of reminds me of the way language works. First of all, the mother tongue, which brings to mind milk, that, that kind of brings that first association to mind. But also that when we look at words, there are some of them, like if you look at a poem, some words are really going to shine. Others are going to disappear into the, into the background. Others are going to recur. And you've got this relationship with these things that are calling attention to themselves. And then like, like the stars, language, words die. You know, they, they vanish. They become archaic. They become arcane. They become out of use. And then they become reborn. And, and we think they're new, but actually that thing's been dead for a long time. And so it so messes with time. And so language to me is just this great sort of mystery. You know, how much, how dependent we truly are on it um, and our identities as cultures and individuals. Um, this is one of the things that just take up a lot of the time and take up a lot of my space inside there. <laughs> yeah, that, that's fascinating to think of words as stars. A lot of times I think of stars as constellations because they yeah. sort of have a shape that, that has all the different yeah. um, things that they're related to, connected together. And yeah. and so the language is the Milky Way is such a cool metaphor. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned, I think, moving to Colorado earlier. Where, where are you from originally? And, and do you think Colorado sort of has changed you just seeing, having that big sky or, or, or the, the seasons? Well, is... I come from Arizona. I come from, from the desert. So mm -hmm. I um, am most at home with wide open space and a desert landscape. Um, I grew up in Tucson when Tucson was kind of a small town. Um, and then um, 
did a good deal of travel throughout my life, lived in Europe, um, and then came back and we were actually, we were living in Las Vegas, um, before we moved here, we didn't have any jobs. <laughs> we had no plan. We had no family here. Um, but the kids had just been born and we wanted to raise them, um, in an idyllic small town. And it was just sort of something we did. Now we look back on it and go, that was pretty risky. Like we didn't have any money. We had no plans. We had two babies, a dog and a cat. Like what were we thinking? <laughs> but, um, but it was sort of like coming home because it really is, I mean, the desert landscape is just so, I mean, I always feel a little claustrophobic when I can't see a long view mm-hmm. um, sort of in my blood too. Um, you mentioned uh, work and almost everybody we interview teaches. Do you teach or do you do no. other? What, 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 <laughs> well, what I, did. Yeah. I did. Uh, mm-hmm. I taught my effect. Uh, so I'm, 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 I would say, a collapsed teacher. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I still teach, you know, on a sort of freelance, I do a lot of things. Um, But I taught in the public school and it really was one of the great lessons about language, you know, for me um, was sort of, you know, teaching overseas, I kind of learned this great lesson that, you know, having several languages was nothing big, no big deal. But in, uh, in this country, my students who were bilingual had just shut down. They just didn't trust their English. They didn't trust their, their Spanish. And they were sort of living in this world where they didn't know, you know, how to communicate. And it was just another one of those sort of great moments where it just felt like, wow, how do you sort of reconcile that? And of course the answer was music, <laughs> but it was really a, a learning um, for me you know, in a sort of a breakthrough way about language and about sort of my own sort of, you know, concerns about sort of speaking, speaking out of turn, you know, or, you know, whatever. So we all have this relationship with language. When is it right to speak? When are you just barking at another dog on the street or is it time right now, you know, to speak? And, you know, when, when I was younger and first sort of, doing that it was so like you have to test that out so like being in you know your your youth you you have to test the voice and then then you learn the power of it you know and so you, you learn to as poets it's sort of like that's the whole idea is to refine in such a way that, that there's all kinds of ambiguities but not misunderstandings do you see what i'm saying mm-hmm. there's a difference between ambiguities and misunderstandings which seem to cause so much strife in the world it seems to me that we'd have world peace if we didn't have so such difficulty with language. Yeah, yeah. It just informs so much of our expectations, which then informs our yeah. perceptions of the world. Um, right. Um, how do you think if if you weren't a poet, how different do you think you'd be? Did you think poetry has changed your life in being a poet? Like, can you imagine yourself if you didn't, you know, find poetry? What What would you be doing? Do you think? <laughs> <laughs> uh. Uh, it's hard to imagine. That's a really good question because you you can do a lot of things while being a poet. <laughs> it doesn't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can say one line a day, and I'm like, it's a good day. <laughs> uh, um, I think that whatever it was, whatever I would do would have had. So, so you were asking me a question of the conjunctive, which is something that they don't have in a lot of languages. Mm-hmm. So this is a very English language thing. Exactly. It, yeah. It, yeah. 
this, what would be? So it's sort of like it requires a kind of a different timeline. Like how does how has that changed my life? Um, I would say that poetry has totally changed my life in that it creates community. You know, I have this sort of formalish, you know, community. You know, I have my local community. I have like you and I are chatting. We've got all these people, you know, gonna read poems here tonight. I mean, that you, I really cannot tell you how much um, that has just been the surprise of a lifetime that poetry creates friendship, community, lifestyle. You know, it really enriches in a big way and not just in the private, you know, struggling with the word kind of world. Mm-hmm. Um, well, we're running up on time a little bit. We have two poems left. I think we could probably read both, but maybe maybe do one poem, then another question from the audience, then another poem. I think we have okay. Deconstruction and the Various Ways Oh My Can Be Said. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Did I really send you that? You yes, s- I You sent that, and now you have to read it. That's the rules. <laughs> All right. Um, so let's, let's go with... Um, <laughs> Let's do the various ways. I haven't read this in a really long time. It's one of those that I, once I was done with it, I was okay with you, and suddenly it popped up, and I went, I'll send this to Tim. The various ways, oh my, can be said. With dread, with a head full of something else that can't be said. With a sigh, over my ties, at a slice of oversized pumpkin pie, unnoticing an open fly, with a grin, when contemplating not enough or everything, with a pretty southern twang, outside, inside, in feigned surprise, while looking into starry eyes, on Sundays, on laterungs, on the slips of Freudians, on the tips of foreign tongues, and somehow, somewhere, oh my, oh my, <laughs> can fill the air when underneath and barely there. Oh, I love that poem. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you sent it and read it. That's a really good one. <laughs> um, let's see. Let me get a question from the audience so we can we can keep as interactive as possible. Um, here, Josh Williams asks, uh, do you have a particular image that seeps into your work? I tend to have birds, windows, and doors that make their way into my drafts. Do you resist those habits? And, um, he also says about the natural world, but I think we talked about that a little bit. So, so how do um, particular images seep into your work? Do you find yourself sort of having, I mean, I think maybe most poets do. Are there certain images and words that you just keep popping out and you can't help it? Yeah, I do. I have, I mean, we can't help it. These things, they, they are mythic to us. Um, and I would say um, that those, the window is a great one. Um, I, I would say that um, they're, they're sort of part of our, they're there to teach us something and to teach our work something and to inform our work. I mean, they, they called this deep imagery. This was a kind of a school where, you know, because we're kind of a symbol illiterate kind of world, that it's really good to know that a window is a window, but it's also a symbol for something, a crow, a raven, a coyote, you know, to know all the different associations with that those certain things that keep recurring. That's the poetic at work <laughs> right there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Say a little bit more about, about being, um, how did you put it? Um, symbol starved, or I don't know, how did you put it? But, <laughs> but, but, but why are we, yeah, yeah, why are we, why do you think we're, is it, is it that we're too science and materialist oriented? Is that the problem you think? Um, I, you know, I think that 
being, I think it's because advertising has really messed with our understanding of it. You know, like we all think of Nike as one thing now. And, you know, let me tell you, Nike knew who Nike was in Greek. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, so you tap into things um, and by not knowing what they came from, you know, what cultures did what with them, what they meant here, what, you know, so think about it, like the pyramids and things like that. That was for for a culture that they, they weren't reading, but they knew what what a symbol meant. It had meaning. Um, and so I think our culture just takes advantage of them. And we're such a marketing world that, you know, that all that kind of all that stuff we've inherited has just been taken over. So there's not a lot of, you know, interest in that. They, they think it, pe most people don't know a lot of those logos and where they come from. Yeah, it's true. And I kind of never thought of it that way, but it's sort of like, like the, the image that maybe like live in our epigenetic memory or something are sort of mm. co-opted by, by the, the constant media saturation or just, just every use that people who know about them, like, like just like Washington, DC, like the layout being a pentagram and the, the monolith, like from Egypt and, and just and the, the dollar with a little like owl on there and all that crazy stuff is like, you know, things that we don't know, but they're being used anyway for different purposes. It's a strange, a strange thing. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think maybe like music, it bypasses the intellect and it responds to so it's like why we respond to the whole Nike thing. It's like it, it just responds to something we don't know. Yeah. So yeah. by being symbol illiterate, we just buy it <laughs> because it's fine. You're getting some kind of reptilian brain thing going on. Yeah. Do, do you think poets sort of use that as like a power for good? Oh my goodness! This is like the Plato <laughs> question, right? Yeah. I mean, you know. I have a, my old friend, Jack Mueller, old beat poet used to say, you can't write a poem out of hate. Um, and so, and he just really believed that. And we had many arguments about it, but I find myself arguing that too, that, yeah. <laughs> so, so do you think poems are sort of prayers to love the universe or something? Uh, no, I just think that, I mean, I think that, Poems are like different for everybody. I, I can't nail it down, but I can only say it's, this seems to be kind of a good influence, uh, you know, that doesn't try to binarize, make everything binary. Mm -hmm. It sort of allows us to be in those in-betweens and we're always told how divided we are. And it's like you said in the beginning, you know, we get a lot of uh, outrage and strife. Um, and there's a whole lot of, in real life, there's a whole lot of in-between. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely the truth. Well, do you want to close out with reading the last poem, Deconstruction? All righty. Thanks again, Tim, for this. It's been great fun. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, I love this. Okay. Deconstruction. The chickadee is all about truth. The finch is a token. The albatross is always an omen. The kestrel is mental. The lark is luck. The grouse is dance. The goose is quest. The need for speed is given the peregrine. And the dove's been blessed with the feminine. The quail is word and culpability. The crane is the dean of poetry. 
The swift is the means to agility, the waxwing mere civility, the sparrow a nod to working class nobility. The puffins, the brother of laughter and prayer, the starling, the student of Baudelaire, the mockingbird is the sound of redress, the grackle, the uncle of excess, the flicker is rhythm, the ostrich is earth, the bluebird a simple symbol of mirth, the oriole is the fresh star, the magpie prince of the dark arts, the swallow is home, and protection, the vulture, the priest of purification. Just kind of lost my place. The harem, a font of self-reflection. The swisher belongs to the fairy realm. Resourcefulness is the cactus wren. The pheasant is sex. The chicken is egg. The eagle is free. The canary, the bringer of ecstasy. The marten is peace, the stork is release, the swan is the mother of cool discretion, the loon is the watery voice of the moon, the owl is the keeper of secrets, grief, and fresh fallen snow, and the crow has the bones of the ancestral soul. Uh, beautiful poem. Great way to end on. Thanks so much, Wendy, for being a guest today. It is as fun as I thought it would be. Um, when is your next book coming out? We can have you on again whenever that is. Is it? Um, I'm hoping by the end of the year. I'm calling Oh, really? It. That's soon. Oh, wow. I'm hoping. We'll see. Awesome. Well, yeah, let me know, and we'll definitely have you back on when it's out. Great. Thanks so much, Tim. This has been great fun. Yeah, thanks, Wendy. It's a pleasure. Great to get to know you for after all these years. I really. This is what I love about the Rattlecast, so it's great to see you. Good night. That was Wendy Vidalock, and uh, once again, her uh, second-to-last book, which I have right here, is uh, The Dark New, a play on words there. And um, her book before that was um, um, Slingshots and Love Love Plums, and that is uh, the most two recent books. You can find more of Wendy Vidalock's work. I wonder if it's on the back. It is not, but you can see the uh, spelling. It's Wendy Vidalock. Dot com. That's W-E-N-D-Y-V-I-D-E-L-O-C-K.com. That's Wendy Vidalock's website. You can get all of her books there and read a whole bunch of poems, including the dark new and uh, newer stuff. So thanks so much for uh, to Wendy for, for being on the show today. Now we're going to take a really quick break, and then we're going to do the open lines. As always here, I'll put this up on the screen so everybody can see. Um, what you do if you'd like to participate, we're going to go for... You know, until the uh, end of the hour. Um, so email the uh, any poems you want to share. It can be anything. There is a prompt, but it can be anything you want. So don't worry if you didn't write a prompt poem. But if you did, or if you have something that relates to the prompt, feel free to share. And what you do is you email it right now to openmic, openmic at rattle.com. And that way I can show it on the screen as you read. You can send the poem, or if it's published online or something, you can send a link, and I can show it that way, whatever is easiest. Uh, and then send me a... Uh, uh, phone call like uh, Carla Schwartz is doing right now to 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times and then hang up. Or if you would like to be on video uh, call, uh, send me a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry. All one word. Just say hi. I'll say hi back and then we'll call you up when the time is right. So pick one or the other and then we'll either talk on the phone or over Skype. And uh, the prompt for this week to refresh everyone's memory was right here. 
Give your poem a utopian or dystopian setting. So it's this week's prompt. Give your poem a utopian or dystopian setting. We'll get to that in just a couple seconds. Uh, but before we do, let me say, I'm going to stand up and stretch and, and put a little bumper music on. And let me say next week's guest is going to be Lois Bear Barr. Um, she is in the current issue of Rail, the Tribute to Neurodiversity. Her newest book is Biopoesis. And uh, that's going to be Tuesday, March 23rd, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Looking forward to that. Just a wonderful poem in this issue. It's a poet I wasn't familiar with until we published her here. Uh, that is Lois Bear Barr, Rattlecast number 85, next week, Tuesday, March 23rd at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, the regular, uh, regularly scheduled time. Now, I'm just going to stand up, take a little bit of a breather. I'll be back in a minute or maybe, um, maybe uh, 30 seconds or so. Be right back. Thanks so much for your patience as I stand up and move around the room a little bit, stretch my back out. Um, let's see. So the prompt, as I mentioned for this week, was give your poem a utopian or dystopian setting. And as I mentioned, I, I've been trying to write these short poems in the sort of Wendy Vidalock or Mike White type style um, for the whole year, really. Um, I, I've departed a few times, but I've been trying to keep them short. And this was my attempt this week. I might just give up after this week. It's been like a year. Uh, I might maybe write, start writing longer poems. But uh, this is uh, my utopian or dystopian poem. You can, you can decide which one it is. This is called The Maker Machine. Once the maker machine could make maker machines, there was nothing left to want. All our hopes and our dreams at the touch of a screen pour out in green blinking font. So I made gasoline and then detonate beam. You're welcome, dear confidant. That is The Maker Machine, my little short poem for this week. And Megan's poem was Dystopia. And of course, these are Megan's prompts every week. Um, Dystopia. When the skyscrapers sag and sigh beneath the weight of their own rot. When the trees are only bones rising from graves of the forgotten when we've worn gas masks so long, we forget what eyes look like. We will walk nowhere from nowhere, our gloved hands clasped like prayer. When the faded graffiti reads help and dust fills the Ferris wheels. When all the books are ashes, like the people who read them. When I can't remember who I was, what a name is, what a flower does. You will draw petals in the dirt and name me the color of dawn. When every house is a picture frame of the life that used to fill it, when art is the shape of smoke takes as it drifts across the sky, when war has finally done what war was always intended to do, you will sit on the ledge with me and show me where the sun used to be. That is Megan's prompt poem, Dystopia. Another excellent poem for Megan, as always. Now let's see what you have for us tonight. Um, we have, so far, um, Richard Westheimer, Nivedita Brent, Stauffer, uh, Carla Schwartz, Kathy Gibbons, um, Carlton Johnson. 
So if you would like, once again, let me show you if you'd like to participate in the open mic. It can be anything. Um, and also, if you're sort of too shy or can't make it, you can also email me poems just to open mic at rattle.com, and I can read them for you. Um, and so, as a few people did, we have uh, Jesse Maloney, Jose Gonzalez. So if you're not here and there's time, Mark Fitzpatrick sent a poem too for the prompt. If there's time and you're not here, um, I can read poems for you. But uh, but if you can call in, call in right now, 818-850-7727 to read your poem or send me a chat message over Skype. So let's call up. I don't think we had Brent last week. Let's call up Brent first. Brent Stauffer, that is. Hey, Brent, let me know when your, your audio is ready. Yeah, I think I'm here. <laughs> yep, you're here. Okay. Am I there? You are. How, okay. you, how you doing tonight, Brent? Wow. <laughs> I'm doing good. I'm uh, a little startled. I'm I'm first. Wow. Yeah, well, you know, you uh, actually, other people like do it right when the show starts, and you do it like right at the open mic usually. So I usually end up going to you more at the end, but I didn't do you last week, so I did you first. <laughs> oh, wow. Awesome. Thanks. Um, so, so what do you have for us? Let me try to find it. I should have been, that's what I should have been doing while the phone was ringing. I don't know what I was oh. thinking. Um, <laughs> there it is. Prompt poem. Uh, you have yeah. a comically serious offer. Ah, a perfect, yeah. uh, perfect yeah. uh, fitting for tonight. Speaking about uh, poetry not being necessarily so serious all the time, and and uh, and also light ver light verse that has um, yet some elements of uh, of serious undertones, perhaps. Uh, you know, yeah, yeah, um, it's it's a it's a homophone poem. Oh. I wrote a dystopian poem. Mm -hmm. Um, but, the but dog I just ate. don't like it. I don't like <laughs> it very much. <laughs> well, that's right. Well, for everybody on the, the homophones was uh, last week's prop, so people know. Yeah. Um, and, and that's another thing. If you have news poems, you know, for for the that you would have done for Poets Respond, or if you have poems from previous prompts, you can share whatever you want on these open mics. So anyway, um, yeah, it's very good. yeah. So so let me tell you. So go ahead and go ahead and uh, read it whenever you're ready. All right. Um, a comically serious offer. If I could, with these two hands, seize the unceasing power of the seas, the long, unseen pulse that flies under the living heart of everything, I'd turn it all over to you. But if you find this palette of word shenanigans a bit unpalatable, my wit, such as it is, and I could easily retire to a palette on the floor, that meager comfort I'd share with you. These hands, though, with their yearning veins, long to touch you again. The rushing blood cells turn like lovesick weather veins. Whether in vain or not, only you can say. I ring these silly bells for you. Hear them, darling, if you will. I love that. Thanks so much, Brad. Yeah, definitely light and fun. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. All right. Thanks. Thanks, Tim. Awesome. Yep. Have a good night. Yep. Great job. Yep. Bye. That was Brent Stauffer with a comically serious offer. Um, let's see, let's call up Nivedita next. Actually, wait, hang on a second. Let me, based on the prompt. Okay. I just want to make sure that, that Nivedita was ready. Let's see what we got from Nivedita. Hey, Nivedita, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you. How about you? Uh, I'm doing good. I got to fix the uh, screen again. Let's see. Can I go like this? It, it, oh, hang on. You're like this tiny sliver. <laughs> let's see if i go like that and then i might just have to have you uh not on oh here you come I, I got the right button this time and i gotta do this side though 
There we go. <laughs> Sorry. I, I wish there was a way for me to do it like faster and better. Like I, I figured out how to manipulate the the um the video window, but it's there's no way to do it quickly. I wish there was like a like a quick button to just like make it that size, but it doesn't work. Um anyway, so what do you have for us? You have a utopia utopia two dystopia or the cycle of life. I mean, what's more utopian or dystopian than life? We come into this world thinking, you know, as a newborn, everything's like brilliant, great. So that's utopia. And then as we grow up, we realize that things are not as they seem. So it slowly becomes dystopic. So it's like, I mean, what's, what's worse than that? So. that? That is true. That is kind of the, we all become, a, you know, in the United States, we would say we all become Republicans. At the end. Um, but anyway, utopia to dystopia. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and read it. Great. Utopia to dystopia, or the cycle of life. The sun peeks out shyly, gazing adoringly at the new addition to the world. The rainbow sparkles and shimmers with joy, showering the new addition with the rich colors of life. The stars build a staircase, leading straight to dreams and hope. The moon gleams with joy, excited to share some of its glow. And thus, a new life begins. Eyes warm with love gaze at the new people. Lips that only form the truth share kisses and laughter aplenty. Living in a place better than before, the new addition totters on unsteadily, unknowingly, yet unerringly towards the future. The naivety and loved child now inexorably, inevitably, irrevocably is thrust into the unknown till the colors of life slowly seep out, replaced by the 50 million shades of grey that snuggle and smother simultaneously shattering the illusions carefully crafted, leaving behind the emotions we know so well. Disappointment, lies, and sorrow. And here is born the adult. But utopia, it lies within, not a physical place. And we could all find it if only we know where to look. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing that. I mean, that is definitely the cycle of life. Um, yeah, thanks so much for sharing that. Always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tim. It's lovely talking to you. Too. Yep. Have a great evening. Yep. Good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay, let me um let me see. We have no we have a bunch of people who emailed poems in um but have not uh, called yet. So if you'd like to call just let me remind you. That's the number there 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727 and uh let me read a poem very short from the prop this is Jose Gonzalez. Let me put it in a um in a word doc and see you know, nothing is pre-screened here i have no idea what's coming up a very short poem sort of a prose poem from jose gonzalez um here we go Oop, that's not right this is hang on you gotta bear with me there it is this is jose gonzalez i'm alive Taking it all in the smells, the noise, everything, some complain about hell or heaven. Seems I can do either. Right here I will settle for peace. So I surround myself with good energy. A poem, Auden or Keats, guess I am in heaven. It's a short poem by Jose Gonzalez. And let's, let's do another poem by, uh, let's do Carlton Johnson's utopian poem. This is My Utopia by Carlton Johnson. My Utopia, with an epigram, April is the cruelest month, T.S. Eliot from the Wasteland. A blunt red cardinal is singing, 
Outside it is April, but it could be March or even December. As this month is maw-opened, wide-eyed like children at the candy counter with 50 cents burning a hole in a pocket for penny candies. Now there is a darkness sapping the sweet peppermint goodness from all. The eyes, irises, cornea once filled with the light of wonder world imaginations, now replaced with chips and screens and on-off switches. I wonder if the cardinal, red with spring frolic, is even real. Is he just a relic, an artifact, an archive from my past when as a boy I would explore round the poplars, elms, maples, ashes, finding treasures left by Blackbeard in strange weird hollows of trunks or underneath an old stone bridge? The red-leaf maples scatter the pathways in late fall. The leaves depart this world, leaving behind fading mutings of gold, red, and orange. Once upon a time, I found a utopia nestled in the upturned pages of books by Bradbury, Heinlein, Asimov, and other sages of the future. I journeyed to space from the pages of sci-fi books and magazines, offering hope to me as a youngster, my utopia. That was My Utopia by Carlton Johnson. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. There are a whole bunch of other people. Let's call up, um, oh, let's, uh, a 970 number's calling. I say call you back, though, so I will not answer right now and, and call back later. We have a 703 as well. Um, let me call the 703. So the phone is ringing, that's 703. Hey, how's it going? Who am I talking to? This is Claudia Gary. Ah, thanks so much for calling in, Claudia. Let me turn off the volume on the, on the iPad, sorry. No, no problem. Okay, so I sent in a poem by email. Yeah, I have it right here. Uh, the the mad, yeah, the mad scientist objects. Objects. Yeah, the mad scientist. Oh, subjects, yeah, yeah. Subjects, yeah, I know. <laughs> so <laughs> let me find it here. Um, uh and this is, of course, a dystopian poem. Excellent. And uh, and uh, so, so where are you calling from, Claudia? It's the first time caller, but we've published you before. Oh, oh, hi, Northern Virginia. Ah, Northern yeah. Virginia, awesome. Well, so glad you could join in. Thank you. Yeah, nice to nice to hear you. And uh, I enjoyed Wendy's reading a lot. Yeah, she's always fun. So the mad, uh, yeah, the mad scientist subjects here in the lab coat pocket where we rock. Our galaxy between odd scraps of lint and roughly scribbled theorems, we're beside ourselves with astronomic wonderment. Is this a place where time is relative, an episodic groove that opens toward and then away from light or from starlight? Do we live within a field where each day is a chord, one moment in an old celestial song? Our universe diffuses while we listen and thrive on melody, Drifting along within our microcosmic trance, we glisten and spark in recognition of our host, who floats, euphoric, still undiagnosed. Uh, excellent. The Mad Scientist Subjects uh, with, uh, by Claudia Gary. And, and Claudia, I um, love the final couplet, first, or the ending couplet. This is great. Um, but let me, let me ask you the same thing, since you're on the line, um, that we were talking about okay. a little bit with, um, with Wendy. How, what is your experience as a formal poet? Do you find uh, that journals are open to, to your writing? And, and do you 
enjoy uh-huh. reading things because because I think most of the things I've read of yours have been f- uh, meter and rhyme. Yeah. Um, do, you, do right. you do you write other poems? Do you enjoy other poems? And, and how do you feel I, as a formal poet? Do you feel accepted? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm just really I'm really um, drawn to music in poetry, just like music mm-hmm. as music. And um, so um, my reading, my early reading was uh, Robert Louis Stevenson. And then, of course, uh, Shakespeare and Spencer and Keats and, you know, all these. So um, I just um, I, I love the current formalists such as um, Rena Espayad, Alicia Stallings, Aaron Puchigian. Uh, and there are so many good people, good, good formal poems being written. Um, there are, yeah, there are a number of, of journals that do like to publish them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a matter of keeping your eyes open for them. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much. I'm so glad you could join us, Claudia. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Yeah. Take care. You Good too. Day. Good night. Good night. It was Claudia Gary with the Mad Scientist Subjects. Um, we have a 970 number. We'll do that next, but let's call up um, Carla Schwartz. Then we'll do the nine seven zero. Find Carla's poem. Hey, Carla, how are you doing tonight? I am good. I'm just muting you right now, so I've got you muted. Excellent. Um, so you have a utopian poem for us. It's utopian, and maybe probably like yours, dystopian. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mine um, definitely was. <laughs> and this is a pantomime okay. as well. Yeah. Is there anything you want to say about it before you start? Um, well, it's fresh. I just wrote it this evening. So excellent. that's always the most fun. Yeah, looking forward to it. Go ahead whenever you're ready. Definitely fresh. Okay. Pantoom for an ideal world. My father says, ideally, one day I'll go to sleep and never wake. He says this so often I chorus with him when he does. My sister says our dad is a five year old. My blaming sister says, Dad, you are the reason my ankles hurt so much. My sister says this so often I can chorus it with her when she does. But then I must hold my tongue from saying, you know this isn't true. You can't blame our father for your sore ankles. My sister punishes our father for all his wrongs. I have to hold my tongue and nod as if my sister speaks the truth. I want to tell her she's a bully and a thief. My sister punishes our father for all his wrongs, for peeing in the night, for being a smelly old man. I tell my sister you're a bully and a thief, and she spews a stream of invective to the screen, complains my father pees too much. She can't stand his breath. My father says, ideally, one day I'll fall asleep and never wake. Oh, wow. That's a great, powerful pantoum. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carla. Oh, thank you. Take care and yeah. great night, of course. Yeah, okay. you too. Good night. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, you can really see the way the repetition in that form carries so much meaning um, through the poem. Um, let's do this. Let's see who the seven or no, nine, seven, zero number is. Um, and I meant to to remind everybody that I'll be calling from the future. So there's a delay. So hang up um, or Cut off your video wherever you're watching it when I call. Hey, this is Tim from Rattle. Yeah, did you want to share a poem? 
Yeah, yeah, this is uh, Jesse Maloney. Hey, Jesse, thanks so much. Glad you could call in. Um, let me see. I'll try to find your poem real quick. I saw it here. Yeah, here it is, Jesse Maloney. And very short. Um, is there anything you want to say about it before you read it? Uh, yeah, this is from Wendy's book, uh, Nevertheless. Ah, okay, cool. So like a, a tribute poem. Excellent. Um, first of all, before you, before you read it, say why you, you picked this one. I turned a page and found it, and it made me laugh. Excellent. Okay, well, let's hear it. Yeah, go ahead. All right. The idol. He watches ball. She throws a fit. She cannot stand to see him sit. Oh, that's great. I do love that. I don't remember that. That's excellent. Yeah, thanks for sharing. That was Wendy Vidalog's The Idol. Uh, thanks for sharing it. Uh, thank you. Yeah, have a good night. Let's see, let me add, uh, before I forget, let me add Jesse to the call list so we know who it is next time. And um, who is the other person? I have to do that later. Might look back at the show, at the 703 number. I don't remember the name. Oh, that was Claudia Gary, of course. Okay, let me, I can add that right now then. Add contact, and that was Claudia Gary. Okay. Now let's see. We have Kathy Gibbons still. We have uh, Richard Westheimer. Let's call up Richard. Have a video for the first time in a little while. Hey, Richard, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Tim. It's good to, good to see you twice in a week. Yeah, great to see you always. Uh, let me let me get you in good good size here. Okay. So, then I gotta go like this. Size. Yeah, yes. While you're doing that, I was thinking when you were talking about the degrees of infinity, like, um, I was reminded, have you ever read about infinitesimals? No, I, I'm not familiar with that, no. Uh, this was the, the reason that Galileo was was put on trial. It's not for the telescope. It oh, was, really? It was for thinking that uh, the infinite was made up of infinitesimal pieces and the church wanted nothing to do with this oh, that's interesting i didn't know that yeah and, yeah I mean, you could always divide you know there's no limit to how many slices of a digit you can have either but <laughs> that you know that was that yeah. violated the church's precepts yeah. and it reminds me of your degrees of infinity right it's uh, yeah yeah how, how fast infinity accelerates makes a yeah. difference uh, thank you for that interview today. That was I I, I literally found myself like clapping <laughs> at home. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, take on one yeah. of the poems. Yeah, I've been fa a fan of Wendy's for so long, and I never never met her, never even saw her give a reading. So it was really cool to to get to do that. Yeah, that's great. Um, so what do you want to share? This looks like a sonnet to me. Uh, Creatures like of early March. Yeah, too. not not a formal poet mostly, but you gave us these homophones, and I thought. It does fit. They, yeah. they rhyme. <laughs> yeah, they do. Okay. Uh, so, and and you brought up one tonight, the new, the uh, GNU, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah. I wish I wish I would have had that one for this one. So, <laughs> anyway, this is my attempt at a formal okay. piece using uh, trying not to be too sing-songy with us on it. The creatures of early March play the long game. The wind howls through the limbs like a hymn that rises with the breaking dawn. I hear between the gusts the warble of a her calling a hymn, a randy blue-green swallow shimmering right here. The day unfurls from this morning's waking hour. The breeze abates 
the warbles fade and peace descends. But then rowdy honks and quacks find our pond as migrant geese and mallards claim their peace of our farm, a place to rest a spell as they weigh whether to pass the night before taking to the air. How sensible they'd be to get back on their way, but how sweet to stay and nest and raise an heir. Yet the prowling fox has other plans for sure, as he stalks in cattails by the lapping shore. Oh, that was wonderful, Richard. I, you know, I'm surprised that you don't write in formal, you know, because your, mu- your poems are always so musical anyway. Um, you, know, you should be a formal poet. Well, I, I, I had I had fun with this one. I appreciate your prompts because, you know, what prompts do is they take you to places that you had no idea were there. You know, yeah. The, yeah. Um, you know, unfamiliar sorts of ways to pattern your voice. So I was really appreciative of that. Yeah, well, I'm so glad. Thanks, Richard. Always great to see you. Yeah, good to see you, too. Bye. Yeah, good night. OK, um, let's see. Let me do. We still have um, Kathy Gibbons will do. And, um, yeah, so we have Kathy Gibbons left, and I'm going to do another couple of these uh, poems that were emailed in that I'll read. Let's see. Oh, Josh Williams emailed me one. Josh, if you're going to, oh, if you wouldn't mind reading this one, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, so I'll read Josh Williams. I'll read, uh, I'll read a bunch of these. This is, um, let's see, where did it go? Yeah, this is uh, this is Rajkumar Lakhikant. Hillock of shame. Here we go. Hillock of shame. At the hillock of shame, I felt ashamed to take my clothes off, bathing there, deeply aware. Nymphs with feeling bathed there too, with tears on their cheeks. Higher beings all unashamed, for the place was meant for such, ideally put there across miles and time. We had not bathed for long, lonesome, and in mirth. We found the way to bathe at the hillock, unashamed. That's a beautiful uh, music in that poem, too. Thanks so much for sharing that. And that was uh, Raj Kumar Lakhi Kant. Or R.K., I guess. R.K. Lakhi Kant. Um, let's do Josh Williams. This is a balance sheet. This is interesting. I'm not sure how to read this. I think maybe Josh emailed me this just to see what I would do. Um, let's see. So here's screen view. This is balance sheet by Josh Williams. And and should I read it across or should I read it down? I think, I guess you probably read it both ways. I'll read it down. Debit. God knows I have the longest lists of dumb, first-world ingratitudes. My mail arrived so late again, I had to wait to cash my check. The water bill was sloppy stern, demanding money, paid last week. And when I turned the other cheek, I found the lost remote control replaced a month ago. God knows I hate to list these and that's, and whose and those, I blame for nothing. Much. I blame my life away. I've said it sucks. They suck. We suck. Until I can't go on. But I do. Then the other column here. Credit. God knows. 
I've seen a cat sing blues, the sunset blush in spring. I've seen a river run away from home and sleep in mine. She left at night gleaming, the stars sunken in her. I've sat in shade and soothed a heat baked in my skin, and anger gone, evaporated. God knows I've been deep in winters, packed with ice, and saw a sunrise spin it to gold, the grass asleep but slowly waking. I've seen my dog chat up a crow, my favorite neighbor asking to play. God knows I whine. Why? I can't say. That is a great, great, um, what do they call those poems? I mean, Josh would have to tell me, maybe still in the chat, um, to tell, there's a word for them, I'm just not remembering what that was uh, but great poems that was josh williams with balance sheet thanks josh and um let's see um okay let's call up kathy gibbons right now that's what we'll do hey kathy how are you doing today hi tim i'm doing great thank you very much uh, and what do you have for us the malevolent ocean the sustaining sea yeah, I was doing a little reading on utopias and dystopias, and I came upon a quote that kind of arrested me, and uh, it was in a book review, and um, that's where this started. And also, I was inspired by, um, I think, Mike Bales on Sunday and the Poetry Spawn mm -hmm. had read a pantoum, and I've been having a little trouble spitting out the words, and um, so I thought I'd give it a try as a tool. So that's why this Excellent. This sounds great. Yeah, go ahead whenever you're ready. It's up for everybody. Okay. The Malevolent Ocean, The Sustaining Sea. Inside every utopia is a dystopia striving to get out. John Crowley. This poet hopes that perhaps the converse holds true. Dystopia reveals utopia after all. A gray to eat you up and yet divest you, digest and toss you with a flick of foam into the unknown. Digest and toss you seaweed salad that you are into the unknown, to the dark belly of the beast. Seaweed salad that you are, a Jonah relegated to the dark belly of the beast. Repentance for your sins. A Jonah relegated to a whale who floats as a refuge. Repentance for your sins becomes redemption. To a whale who floats as refuge, a home to bide your time, becomes redemption from the wet and weary world. A home to bide your time with a flick of foam from the wet and weary world, a gray to eat you up and yet divest you. Excellent. Another, it's like Pantuum Day or something. Thanks for sharing that, Kathy. <laughs> yeah. Great poem. Thanks for having me, Tim. Bye. Yeah, me too. Yeah, bye. It was Kathy Gibbons with uh, The Malevolent Ocean, The Sustaining Seed. I love that quote. I never heard it before. John Crowley, unfortunately, probably true. Inside every utopia is a dystopia striving to get out. Um, let's see. I want to make sure I get to everybody. Maybe I'll put up, this is what I'll do. I'll put up the numbers one last time just in case anybody uh, wants to go in and is missing. It's 818-850-7727. Uh, That's 818-850-7727. And uh, what you do is you call, let it ring a couple times, then hang up, and I will call you back when the time is right. Um, let's see. So we have, I'm going to make sure I get to some other poems we have here. 
We have one from Vicky Miko. And this is the Queldrian. Queldrian. Am I saying that right, Vicky? I hope so. The Queldrian. Here we go. This is Vicky Miko's poem. The natives built a wishing well deep within the aspen trees, born beneath the Methuselah star, by chance or possibility. Their haloed hollow was scared by one lightning bolt, struck almost to the molten core, the natives whittled aspen trunks into alabaster, spindle, spire, and boom, broom. The roof's peak was made of king's clone tar, the well from granite stone. Around the foot grew nets of nettle and dock. They named the well Queldrian. The water flowed pure as crystal under lime and sandstone rings. It filled their pristine wishing well, fed by cerebellum springs. The natives made sacrificial effigies, their wishes cast from sun-baked molds. No spears or coins or pennies. Wishing became their sacred stones. The sacred stones were stored away in hollow circus, circus along the riverbed. They chanted, bowed, and prayed, their queldrian well-fed. The children carved heartwood wishing toys from yellow willow and bristle cone. Pine root dolls were weaved and sewn, laid in rocking cradles of buffalo bone. Every night they dreamed their wishes, lulled by waving sprockle bells. Above them a canopy of stars, aspen crowns, and moonlit contrails. The natives wrote wishing stories of elk and fox and moon circadian. Their royal tomes were read one by one, pledged to their hollow queldrian. All neatly ascribed in cursive, on brownish paper and mended spine, their royal covers dyed in waves of aqua blue and red kine? Sorry, I'm, I'm, there's a lot of words I don't know how to spell. <laughs> Inscribed beneath your epigram, I wish I may, I wish I might. On every facing page it read, if you toss a coin into a wishing well, where the little dipper dips, it comes up empty, with a cold and empty wish. Better to give pots and pails brimmed with worms and snails, and lily-bellied fish, and when you do, all your wishes will come true. So the natives lived well on harvest wishes, not by chance or possibility. Deep within the aspen trees, they gave thanks each day, one by one. They christened their well, all polished and done. Here's our wish to you, our wishing well, our beloved Queldrian. Um, epic poem there. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was Vicky Miko. And um, yeah, I never know how to spell that word. I always said cyan, but I have no idea. C-Y-A-N. There's a lot of words that you just read and you never actually hear out loud. Um, let me see... Let's see. I want to make sure. Oh, here's um, Mark Fitzpatrick has a poem. He says, I'm self-published poet, two books so far, and I've written a dystopian poem that might be a good fit for your open mic. So let me uh, pop this into a Word doc. This is Helios by Mark Fitzpatrick. You can find him at Mark Fitzpatrick. Actually, I'll, I'll grab this uh, website too so you can see that. So this is, uh, here we go. This is Mark H. Fitzpatrick from Toronto, Canada. And his Twitter ad is uh, M.H. Fitzpatrick, and his website is MarkHFitzpatrick.com. And Helios is his poem, the dystopian poem. Helios. The sunflowers are gone. The children call them giraffe flowers. Hard to argue that. 
They chatter about other worlds. We hold their hands and nod, tell them about our wars, how bright the sky was, and how yesterday it rained for the last time. Oh, that's a creepy dystopian poem. Thanks for sharing that, Mark. I like that a lot. Thanks. Um, let me see. Fifteen minutes left we could do if we have any more. Let's see. Here's another short poem uh, that was submitted this week by Liv Hernandez. And this is for the homophones, though. Um, so let me, uh, let me share this, too, with you. Um, and Liv Hernandez also says, I'm a self-published author. Here, I'll show this for you. I am a... Oops, let me do this one. I am a self-published author and poet. This, however, is my first time submitting a poem for something like this. Below is my poem. I saw the prompt with homophones, so I used break, break in my poem. I tried to keep the poem short in length. I'm not sure what other info I need to send it. Um, my name is Olivia Nickel from San Antonio, Texas. Olivia Nickel. Hope this is good enough. The poem is untitled. Life often overwhelms us. We are tempted to put things on hold and hit that break because we don't know how much more we can take. Even the tiniest things make us want to break. It's important to remember this. When something starts to feel amiss, stop and reminisce. Whether it's a laugh or a smile, a hug or kiss, find something to keep you sane in this world that seeks to drain. Excellent advice uh, from Olivia Nichol. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, let's see, I'm going to do another, we'll close out maybe with one last random poem. Um, oh wait, no, Maribade Carr. I guess I'm reading a lot today. This is Maribade Carr, and, um, this is Maribade's poem, Screaming to be Held. And I'd, I'd love to read it, of course. Uh, let me get this back going. Maribade Carr's poem she sent in just now, Screaming to be Held. Screaming to be held. And before another world flood, floods, we fall to the ground, cross-legged around the crippled fire, struggles to flicker or even click. Soft shadows tell who is holding their head, rocking, tapping, or crying. And before it becomes a flood of bubbling, boiling echoes, someone stands, extends a hand, squeezes a shoulder. Poetry tumbles slowly from firm lips, embraces the breeze, functions as kindling, flames suddenly sparkle, eyes are born in reflection. The invisible is spoken, and as a collective, ships are built to push through the waves and settle the sea like a baby in a cradle, screaming to be held. Excellent ending there. I love that. That was Maribade Carr, who um, has a newborn baby. So congratulations again, Maribade, on that. Um, okay, now let's finish up, because I think... I think, uh, yeah, that'll be it for tonight. Let me do a random poem to close us out. Here's a short poem by J.T. Ledbetter that just came up on the random button from rattle number 34. This will close us out. This is Grandmother. And uh, here we go by J.T. Ledbetter. Grandmother. She lay quietly as if she w could wake and only pretended not to know what our call intended. But her dress was fresher than it should have been and straighter, and the eyes were closed in something more than sleep and greater. Yeah, it's interesting that that's the poem that came up. Sorry if that was a little too loud, um, but that is a very Wendy Vidalockish poem, I'd say. Grandmother. Uh, let me let me just read it again because I, I might be I might have 
blasting you a little bit. Very short. J.T. Ledbetter's grandmother. She lay quietly as if she could wake, and only pretended not to know what our call intended. But her dress was fresher than it should have been, and straighter, and the eyes were closed, and something more than sleep, and greater. That was J.T. Ledbetter's grandmother. Thanks so much for for publishing that poem back in uh, winter 2010, J.T. And that is going to be it for the Rattlecast for tonight. Thanks, everybody, as always, um, for participating in all the ways that you did. It's always appreciated. If you haven't yet, do click the like button, no matter where you're watching this as well. Um, Josh Williams over says, sorry, uh, he did a fine job reading it. Sorry, I threw my voice out. Says, Josh, sorry, you threw your voice out. I hope you feel better soon. Um, I haven't been looking over at Facebook lately. But uh, yeah, so thanks, everybody, for uh, participating. And let me tell you one more time. Next week's guest, oh, before we do the prompt for next week, you know what? Somebody on the live stream said, um, suggested that, that um, I can't, let me see if I can find who said it. It might have been Richard Westheimer. I'm not sure. But let's do that for the prompt. Why not? Um, Wendy mentioned sometime during uh, the interview that uh, it was after Josh Williams' question, actually, about what, what form, what meters work best for humor. And Wendy said um, that uh, it's hard to write a serious poem in, um, um, in the uh, limerick form. So I, let's do the prompt. Let's, do a, uh, let's, let's make the prompt this week a serious poem in a limerick form. Uh, so in limerick meter. So, you know, like, um, there once was a man from Nantucket, you know, that kind of, that kind of poem. Okay. It'd be linked. So every stanza is, um, that so it can be as long as you want, but let's do, uh, let's do a serious limerick is next week's prompt. So that's your prompt for next week. Write a serious limerick and we'll just move the uh, prompt we had planned for up till next week. And, uh, next week's guest in the Rattlecast, like I said, is going to be Lois Bear Bar. And Lois Bear Bar is, uh, in Rattle number. 71 that just came out um and she's also the author of a couple books of poetry her most recent is biopoesis um, and that is rattlecast number 85 tuesday march 23rd 9 p.m eastern time like always hope to see you there i'll see you in the meantime on uh, the rattlecast and on the poets respond live open mic on friday and sunday but then next tuesday is rattlecast number 85 with lois bear bar and your serious limericks So good luck with that. Hope you have a great week. Hope you have a good night. And thanks again, as always, for being part of this great, fun thing we call poetry. Good night.